Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Hey everyone, Ben Tapper here with another week of the Invisible Truths podcast. Today I have a very special friend and guest with me. Her name is Hazel Owens. Hazel is a marriage and family therapist intern. She also works at Common Ground Midwest as a pastoral intern. She's a Bible teacher and preacher, and she is the co-founder of an organization called Perfectly Imperfect, which works with the family unit on issues of faith, culture, counseling, and communal healing. So thank you, Hazel. It's so good to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Is there anything that you want to add to uh, your list of accolades? (laughs) (laughs) Not not necessarily add, um, just to kind of speak a little bit more about Perfectly Imperfect, if I may. Um, It started out as an organization designed specifically for women that um, was birthed out of my own personal story and um, not embracing the imperfections that I hold and realizing how so many women struggle with this idea of perfectionism. Um, And so it started out with me wanting to just tap into that and help women um, become more unapologetic of who they are uh, while changing the things about them that no longer serves them well or is no longer healthy for them, but embracing those unique imperfections that I believe are just given by God that could be used in in beautiful ways. And so um, as I started doing that work, I realized more and more that I shouldn't just be focusing on women. Mm. And so what would it look like to um, do this for the entire family unit? And so I am rebranding and redesigning that organization. Um, So yeah. That's kind of where we are. So we're still in the very early stages and brainstorming type developmental <laughs> stages yeah. of the of the organization. But yeah, I couldn't just um, while women are at my heart, I could not just do this for them, knowing that they are wives and mothers and sisters mm-hmm. and and daughters and friends. And so that means yeah. that there are other people that they're connected to that impact their story and, and whose stories that they also impact, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're part of a, a web or a network. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. So that's kind of where we are. I love the way that you framed the idea of, of imperfections as something that God gave. Yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering for you, mm-hmm. what are some things that maybe at one time you named as imperfections, but now understand as gifts from God and purposeful parts of your creation? Yeah. So I would, I would, there's many things. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like God made me a ball of hot mess mm-hmm. and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I would do something really simple, which is, which I think many uh women and I would say individuals period can identify, uh, especially as a woman of color. So for me, it was um, something as simple as my hair, for example, um, or the shade of my skin tone. Um, I'm a little chocolate and that's okay. Chocolate is good. So in certain settings though, that's not seen as beautiful. That's seen as, as imperfect. In society, it's seen as an imperfection, right? Well, I can't help that. Mm. That's not a, a, a flaw that I have learned mm-hmm. or that I have been constructed into. Uh, that is naturally who I am, yeah. right? So why not embrace that? Because there's something about what maybe society sees as imperfection or maybe what I have seen at one point in my life as an imperfection. Why not embrace that as something that is God-given, that is beautiful, that God could use for his, her glory. Mm-hmm. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. So so that's a really simple, like, basic way of thinking of it. But, um, and I wonder, I started doing some deeper work uh, through therapy or what have you. What else? You know, what personality uh, mm. uh, traits that I have that 
maybe I once viewed as an imperfection because society has viewed it as an imperfection or because uh, family and friends said, mm, you need to tone that down, you know, whatever the case may be, um, that God is like, no, um, I gave you that gift. I gave you that, that piece of you for a reason. Um, and when you line it with the purpose that I have for you, you're going to do some amazing things in my name. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's mm-hmm. kind of what I mean by that. Yeah. What did you have to experience in order to come into that truth for yourself? Yeah. Um, I think I, I lived a life of, in many ways, rejection and abandonment mm-hmm. um, stemming from childhood, uh, from the relationship that I had with my father. Uh, I became his caretaker before he passed away for many years, and we didn't have a relationship. Mm-hmm. So I would say that that's the starting point uh, for me to start uh, realizing that everything that I've been searching for stemmed from a lack of what I thought was acceptance uh, or want uh, from from my own father. And so as I became his caretaker and started working through those things, and it really was at the same time I'm growing more in my faith. And so through that giving me the strength to care for a man who once did not care for me in the way that a child should be cared for by his or her parent. Mm. Um, I didn't receive that. And then learning how to work through forgiveness, uh, repairing a broken relationship, and realizing that a lot of the anger and, and decisions that I made and how I viewed myself, that was part of that, that shaping. I mean, society has is, is its own other layer, right? But when you have two parents uh, constantly affirming you, you are able to fight through, not all the time, but you're able to fight through what society imposes on you just a little bit. And so I didn't have that. Um, and it's through, through working through that relationship where I started to um, really search deep on, okay, what does this love of God really mean? Uh, for me, what does it mean for me? And once I started embracing that, then I was able to start embracing that love for myself all over again mm. and become more unapologetic. Yeah. And that took time. That took therapy. That took growing in my faith. That took repairing broken relationships. That took um, questioning society's uh, view of what a woman should or should not be and how a woman should look. And it took it took a lot of that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That's so relatable. Uh, you made me think of my own journey and where I'm at right now. And mm-hmm. one of the things that that I am acutely aware of is um, the things that make it difficult for me to form the same depth in male relationships that I can form in female relationships, mm, right? Yeah. And and for me, though, though I experienced rejection... in some way from both my biological mother and Mm -hmm. my stepfather and maybe even my biological father it it hit me differently especially with my stepfather Mm -hmm. he was you know the one that um, was the perpetrator of a lot of the physical abuse and the verbal abuse and so I think there are ways that I internalized the things he said and the ways that he made me feel that created not only a negative sense of self-worth but also a separation from my uh, my identity as a man, right? Yeah. And, and I'm not talking about cultural constructs of what it means to be um, or a part of the male gender necessarily, but just it, there's like a separation to where I feel like my manhood is inadequate, um, or or at least I feel like other men are perceiving my manhood to be inadequate or less than, and so I'm just struck by. The, the impact that rejection from a parent figure, an authority figure even, doesn't have to be a parent, can really, uh, really form cracks in like the foundations of your identity that linger for a, a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's exactly where I was with, with my dad. So I give this example. Um, as he was dying, uh, we would uh, have conversations about his final wishes and what have you. And this particular day, um, I took a pause on the final wishes, and I just wanted to chat with him, mm-hmm. right? And so we're just sitting there talking, and and I can't remember what all we were talking about, but I remember um, as I was saying something, he interrupted me, and he said, Hazel, you are so beautiful. 
Mm. Now, I'm also petty, okay? So, <laughs> so that spirit has not fully left me. Yeah. It was a very beautiful moment. I saw, like, and heard your reaction to it. <laughs> yeah. It really was. It was a beautiful moment. But I ain't gonna lie. The pettiness in me mm. for just a split second wanted to say to him so bad, I'm glad you caught up to who God already said I was. Mm. But then I said, don't ruin the beautiful mm -hmm. moment, Hazel. Enjoy mm -hmm. what? So he said that. And that was the first time. Ever? Ever. Man. Ever. Now, he has said things, I love you. He said things like, I'm proud of you. Uh, usually they were in like a drunken or, or uh, inebriated mm -hmm. state. So that was always confusing for me as a child. Um, and then as he became uh, ill and was sober for the best that he could be sober he would still say those things and i can truly see the meaning in it mm -hmm. but that was the first time he recognized me as being beautiful mm -hmm. first time ever mm -hmm. and i'm what like it was a few years ago so 33 34 years old mm -hmm. so um i say i tell that story to say that at that point in my life with the work that i've done internally uh, like I said, through therapy, through growing spiritually, what have you, I didn't need that validation from him anymore. Mm -hmm. It was nice, and it's touching, and it and it, it stuck with me. So it obviously impacted me, and I already had that affirmed. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. yeah. Was there a part of you that still wanted it, even if you didn't need it for your sense of worth or identity? I think subconsciously, yes. Okay. At some point, yes. It's. it's I mean. It, who doesn't want their parent to tell them yeah. that they're beautiful or they're handsome or they're gifted, they're talented? Like, who doesn't want that, yeah. right? So I, I believe underneath all of it all, yes, I still wanted that, mm. whether I needed it or not. It was just nice that if he had a past and not saying that, that did not mm. make me question. Yeah. You, do you see what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. It's just it's just a, a interesting thing, but that's what rejection does to you mm -hmm. until you're able to fully work through it. If your dad were in the room now and could hear anything you would say, what would you want him to know? I don't know. I, I that I'm grateful for him. I guess mm. because he knew this like even before he died like we've, we've had these conversations mm -hmm. i had to tell my dad like do ain't nobody mad at you no more like mm -hmm. you know so um but i often i did he didn't know as he was passing that our story has impacted so many people mm -hmm. and he was grateful for that mm -hmm. and so um if he was here right now i would want him to know that i'm grateful for the time mm -hmm. that i had with him mm -hmm whether regardless of the amount of time it was yeah so yeah tell me about your story my story as, as it pertains to what i'm a hot dad, mess well you so. said you said our story oh okay yes yeah. yes story? so um it was it's been an interesting journey with him uh again my dad and i i was a daddy's girl mm -hmm. as the family tells it um <laughs> when i was really little so he <laughs> was uh um Unfortunately, drugs and alcohol took over his life. Mm. Um, and I say it in that way and in that fashion because what I, what I had come to realize was that this was not something that he chose. Mm. It's what he felt he had, all he had left. He mm. felt that um, that was all that he could do. Uh, what I later found out, my dad was diagnosed with depression uh, at the age of 17 years old. And he didn't know his father, never met him. And he didn't want to know who he was. So as he grew up, um, his whole mentality was that man, whoever that man is, uh, didn't care enough to find me. Why should I find him? So mind you, as a kid, though, I don't know these things, right? Mm -hmm. So um, here we are, a little girl obsessed with her dad. Um, and because of his uh, drug abuse and, and, and alcoholism, he, became, he was very violent in the home. Um, 
And so there were uh, mistreatment of my older siblings. And I don't want to get into that because that, it's their story. Right, that's their yeah. story. Um, there was mistreatment to, to my younger brother and I in, in different forms um, and definitely my mother. And so there was a huge separation that uh, took place where we left the home. Um, I believe for safety mm. reasons. Um, I believe for uh, my mom's peace of mind, mm -hmm. in a sense. And so there was a stretch uh, of time where he was not physically present. We would see him here and there, but he wasn't uh, physically present. And when he was working or what have you, he would always send money. But we didn't have that that time. How and old so were you? I was about four years old mm -hmm. when um, that happened, and probably about 13 when. Uh, he and my mom decided to reconcile and uh, apparently he was clean and sober. I don't know how true that was because the following year we were kind of back to the same habits. So my high school years from 14 uh, through 18, there was lots of drinking and he became what I would consider a um, functioning mm. alcoholic. So he would go to work every day, he would make sure the bills are paid, he would do all those things, but we had no access to him, even though he was in the home. He was unavailable. He was unavailable, absolutely. And so um, I would hear my dad and my mom argue a lot. So anger was present in the mm. home. Uh, there wasn't many other emotions <laughs> that was there mm. besides that. Um, there were times where um, I've witnessed things uh you know, he tried it a couple times <laughs> physically, mm. um, being physical with my mom, and that didn't last long. <laughs> and so I, I don't want to laugh because I don't want to, like, you know, make fun of or diminish the story. But, yeah. I mean, my mom is 5'4", <laughs> and okay. so my dad, he's, he was a pretty big guy. And so um, he, I personally have seen uh, physical violence mm. um, at least twice. Mm. Um, and yeah, the second time around, uh, I don't think he, and I don't know, maybe he did and I wasn't around. I'm not sure. Uh, again, not my story to tell, but that's what I see. Wait, wait, you, so, you, you, you don't think he what? Um, I don't think he, he was physical with her okay. after the second time that I saw, okay. but I don't know for sure. sure. Again, that's not my story sure. to tell. And I know what happened in those two times, what my mother did mm -hmm. to, to kind of shut that down. Mm -hmm. So um, so the point is, is that our relationship was different. Um, as a little bitty kid, it's Poppy. That was the mm -hmm. name that I had for him to, I mean, I called him dead, but didn't really feel like I had that connection with him. Um, out of sheer respect would still try to honor him in some ways as most kids who want and desire their parent would try to do things to to get that time so that never stopped um and the one thing i will say that i think shaped me uh into having a hard time with self-esteem when i was younger especially in my high school years there was a time where he and my mom were arguing and it woke me up in the middle of the night and my mom is very fair complected. Mm -hmm. uh, she's Irish, Indian, and black. If she heard this, she'd be like, child, I'm black. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But- uh, She's light skinned. She's super light. Yeah. <laughs> so she's super light. But somehow in the arguing, he mentioned something about the only reason why he was with her or pursued her or what have you was because of thinking that she was of some other ethnicity mm. and um, proceeded to degrade black women. And I remember hearing my mom yell at him and, and I remember these words, how dare you say this when you have a beautiful black daughter in the other room. I don't remember what was said after that. I just remember feeling crushed in that moment. So here I am at a predominantly white school, being made to feel different, being uh, picked at because of my differences in many ways, uh, being told things like, oh, you're pretty for a black girl, or you're not like other black girls, or all these things that, that, that 
you know, white people tend to think are compliments, but they're really microaggressions. Mm -hmm. um, and getting that reinforced in the home mm. through that conversation. Mm. And so that drove what well, I believe it drove a deeper wedge between my dad and I. And so then we go from this relationship where I don't respect him mm -hmm. as a person, uh, left home one month after graduating high school to escape mm. him. And then fast forward, I have to be his caretaker. Yeah. And so you talk about a story of where it literally moves from um, toxicity, frustration, anger, mm -hmm. to forgiveness, to understanding, to compassion, mm. and all those things, to a reconciled relationship mm. as best as it was going to be, and knowing that he passed away and I fully honored him as father. So that story as I take bits and pieces of it when I'm working with people um, or doing stuff like this or blogging or what have you has been a tool to help others go through the same process. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's our story. Mm -hmm. I wish I could sum it up in one sentence, but I can't. It's because it's a complicated story. Well, <laughs> I'm, it, I'm struck by the fact that in the end, you were his caretaker, meaning you were taking on the role that he was supposed to have taken on for you earlier yeah. and ostensibly failed at. Yeah, and I would say my bro my younger brother did did this too. So this was a this was a shared effort. I had the role solely by myself for four and a half years. Uh, my brother had the role with the help of my mom for four and a half years, and then he died. I will say he made sure he let both of us know how proud he was of us, and he was always proud of us. I don't think we ever doubted that. But um, yeah, so I don't know what he learned out of mm. that. Do you, I don't know if this fits in with your uh, faith tradition, but mm -hmm. um, do you still have access to him? Is that part of your, your belief system? Access to my father? Mm-hmm. Mm, eh, not really. That's kind of creepy to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's just me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand it, though. Yeah. I do understand it uh, with, with other people. Like, some people say, oh, a bird comes and visit, and I think that that's... My loved one, and, and, and I sit with people in that all the mm -hmm. time and grief counseling that I do, I get it, I get all of that. For me, um, I think where I still find my dad is through memories. Mm. It's through storytelling, it's through looking at pictures. Right now, three years later, I still have pictures, the last pictures that I've had with him and pictures that I found of him in my phone. I have a picture of him when he died at home in my phone, like, I can't let that go, so that's kinda, and through things that are his, so I have, my dad loved uh, rock and roll, I know. Uh, he's the only black man that I knew that loved rock, rock and roll, I'm and so. <laughs> Thank you for explaining that for our listeners. For those not in the room that can't see our nonverbal. Yes. <laughs> like she, she understood and heard the confusion in my mind. Yes. Like, wait, what? Right. So, thank you for naming that. Right, right. So, um, guys, it's, 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 it's real in here. But, so, yes. Um, so, like, I have his albums, yeah. you know. So, there's little things that, that I have. That's how I still see him. I, I wouldn't say that, you know, I experience him through some other symbolic or spiritual type way. Um, early on, I had dreams about him a lot. And I think that's natural and part of the grieving process. Um but no, that's that's not for me. So, and I understand it. Mm, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I think he's here. By the way, that's why I brought it up. I Amen. Feel him. Amen. You talked about um, the impact of being in a white school, realizing that you weren't fully affirmed even at home. Um, and the microaggressions of, of white folks. And so what is your journey into your own um, owning of your black girl beauty been like? Oh, man. 
it's been interesting. I it's so funny because I recently just started thinking about this more deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, I went to an all black school, so this is before high school. So when I lived in in Gary in Chicago even mm-hmm. and in Gary, Indiana, um, my school was black. Mm-hmm. Proudly black. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, I mean, it's Gary. It makes a lot of sense. That is true. We didn't see that many white. Nah. Anyway, whatever. But it it wasn't just so much that, oh, it's a predominantly black community. It was this sense of pride Mm -hmm. that webbed through the schools that I was a a part of. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. So when I say it's black, I'm talking capital B. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're gonna, you know. So my teachers were black. Mm-hmm. Um, the people I went to school with was black. We sang the black national anthem mm-hmm. like every day. Yeah. Like we had to learn these things. Um, there's a picture that I, I often post ra- randomly throughout the year of my younger brother who had a sweatshirt on that says I'm black and I'm proud. Like that's mm-hmm. the kind of environment mm-hmm. that we we were a part of. Um, and my family, especially my mom and, and some of her siblings, would make sure that we understood our history, mm-hmm. understood who we came, where we came from. Um, if I question my mom's parenting on this, because at five years old, I'm watching Roots. Every year we had to watch Roots. Mm-hmm. And not just one volume of Roots, like the whole mm-hmm. Roots series. Darlita yeah. was not playing. Yeah. So that I, I mention that and emphasize that because that's how rich it was for us. Mm. And we moved to this predominantly white community um, for better opportunity. Um, that's a whole story in itself why we moved. Uh, it was economically better for, for my mom trying to raise us and, and safer in some ways uh, mm. so that we're not subjected to violence and and gang violence and, you know, all these things, especially because the younger two of me and my younger brother. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, when you're in this environment and you have to slow down your speech now because Mm. people can't understand you, where the administrators try to discourage you or discourage your parent to from letting you into a school that is literally across the street. This was in Chicago? This was in Elkhart when we moved. So when we moved to Elkhart, we're in this, yes, Elkhart. Yes. <laughs> Again, yeah. guys. Yeah. Like the face I just made is like. Ben oh, made okay. a face like, oh, Lord. Yeah. And I am uh, recognizing that facial expression and what that means. Mm. So, yes, Elkhart, Indiana is where we moved to. We lived in a townhome directly across the street from the middle school mm. that I would have spent my last year of middle school at. Um, the administrators wanted us to be bused to another school on the other side of town. We, not knowing anything about the area, on the other side of town is where it's predominantly black neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. My mom was like, no, mm-hmm. they could walk to school, and my job is literally two blocks away from the school. Mm-hmm. So, no. Yeah. So, anyway, so, so looking back and realizing that, trying to make friends, having to slow down my speech because people don't understand me, uh, being made fun of by other black kids because I live on a certain side of town. Um, I'm also a girl from the hood, so... If you're talking about me behind my back, I'm pretty much like, bump you. Like, I ain't going to deal with you. And so my cutoff game was strong, Mm. even in the eighth grade. And Mm. so then I'm being teased and mocked because most of my friends are either white or Asian or what have you. And I'm not sitting at the table with all the black kids. Well, the black kids didn't always accept me. Mm. So Mm. what am I supposed to do with that, right? Um, And trying to navigate, what does this mean? I'm not black enough for the black kids in this environment, but I was sure black enough for the kids in my old school. Mm-hmm. And I'm too black for many of the white kids here. Yeah. So it put me in a really awkward mm-hmm. position that, that I think made me struggle with longer than what I probably would have ever liked. 
um, and didn't even realize how much of a struggle it was at the time, if I'm being quite honest. Mm-hmm. Um, so that carried over into into corporate, uh, working in corporate America. So um, wouldn't embrace my natural hair, just kind of, you know, playing the mm-hmm. game. And so it wasn't until recently, I mean, three years ago was when I started wearing my hair natural. So, mm-hmm. um, and that was an accident. Yeah. And then when, but when it happened, I'm like, well, shoot, I'm, if I'm about to embrace all these imperfections, the hair was the last thing. Yeah. I'll let these curls flow. Yeah. Right? Amen. So, so and, and now I feel like I, I'm there. Now mm. I have language for the experiences that I, that I had growing up. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a struggle. And I, I remember being upset at myself often for not speaking up for me not speaking up for my culture um and i just didn't know how to at the time yeah so yeah it's fascinating that you named that not being black enough um because that's something that i know i have uh felt as a biracial person and other biracial people often experience Mm -hmm. um you don't i haven't often heard other folks that are black name that though you know occasionally if someone talks too properly they might get that levied at them you know um but but so it's interesting for me to hear that that was your experience as well yeah i mean i wouldn't say it to the to the magnitude that my biracial friends would experience Mm -hmm. it um so i i I don't want to take away that experience because it's not to that magnitude but just by just by talking uh proper Mm -hmm. i'm using air quotes guys proper um just by uh as one would say to me sounding white which i still Mm -hmm. that still unnerves me i Mm -hmm. I don't i don't get it um so doing that alone would warrant like oh you know you know you Mm -hmm. you, or like my uh friends that you know i once went to school with and gary like oh you know you didn't get to that school date and whitened you up Mm -hmm. like you know, just things mm-hmm. like that. Um, one thing I appreciate about being in that environment w- was the experience of other cultures. Mm-hmm. So that lend itself for me to have exposure to different things. And it was such a struggle because it's like, well, wait a minute. I'm still black. Mm-hmm. I still love my blackness. Mm. I may not understand how to articulate that anymore mm. because I've been stripping it down so much to try to fit into white dominant spaces. Mm. But there's a piece of it, at least especially at that time, I still loved and wanted to hold on to for dear life and was mad at myself for feeling like I was forced to strip that down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is, that speaks to a larger struggle of um, trying to understand how to articulate and express various aspects of our identity mm-hmm. um, without the filter of cultural expectations or the expectations of the dominant culture, right? Right. Be that your gender identity, your sexual yes. orientation, your racial identity, uh, you know, whatever it is. I feel like those of us that are in these spheres are trying to do that work for ourselves mm-hmm. to be able to just name authentically who we are without the baggage uh, of the expectations of, of the cultural mm-hmm. norms. Absolutely. Becoming unapologetically you yeah right um we talked briefly before this and this reminded me of a racial identity model uh racial Mm. identity theory and i do want to touch on it real quick because i think i want people to really hear the level of stages that one may go through as a person of color as they are starting to and and many don't even realize that they're working through these stages Mm -hmm. um and identifying who they are in a space that or a society, I should say, that is dominated by whiteness. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, Before you jump yeah. in, for, for the listeners, my I don't have a way to know this for sure, but my guess is most of you are white. And so um, I want to lay a little bit of a foundation so that this kind of can sink in better. For white kids growing up don't generally have to think about being white. Like they're rarely ever, if ever told, you are not white enough. Um, they don't have to wrestle with what it means to own whiteness as part of their identity. They think about their gender as part of their identity, maybe their Irish or Italian heritage on occasion, their athleticism, their orientation. Those are things they think about in terms of forming identity. But for children of color, 
your color, your <laughs> yeah. melanin yeah. is part of your identity because you are reminded that you are an other, right? Mm-hmm. In your schools, um, in your neighborhoods, in the stores you go to, on the shows you watch when you don't see yourself reflected, um, that's something you have to think about and then try to understand, well, why am I an other? What is other about mm-hmm. me? What is abnormal? Um, am I going to accept or reject those parts of mm-hmm. me, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what does either choice mean? And so this mm-hmm. this racial identity theory that Hazel's about to unpack deals with the phases um, of that recognition for, for people of color, whether you're multiracial or solidly part of a specific ethnic group. Yeah, and I would say that it, you can anyone can go out and research this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's different models that um, make up this racial identity theory that one could use. Uh, it's broken down for people of color, meaning uh, in particular black people, uh, biracial uh, individuals, uh, Latinas, Latinx, Filipino. Um, and so all of these different things. And, and, and you could, like I said, it's, it's very, it's researchable. I mean, it's, yeah. it's easily, uh, it's, it's an easy way to, to, to really learn about it. But I just want to talk really quickly about five stages uh, for for black American racial identity. This was developed by William Cross. You have the pre-encounter, and I'm just going to read directly what what he says. Um, Absorbed, uh, people of color absorb many beliefs and values of the dominant white culture, including the notion that white is right and black is wrong. And unfortunately, that is something that I truly believe stems back to slavery. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, whiteness as a construct wouldn't even develop until slavery came mm-hmm. in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it um, creates a, a de-emphasis on one's own racial group membership. And they're unaware of the race or racial implications. I'm not going to read all of them. Then you have the encounter stage, the immersion uh, stage, internalization. This is where uh, one uh, begins to become secure in their own sense of racial identity. Mm. So they get to a point after they go through all of this where they have a pro-black attitude uh, that becomes more expansive and open and less defensive. Mm. Uh, Mm. Willing to establish meaningful relationships with whites who who acknowledge and are respectful of one's Mm self-definition. Because here's the other thing. Uh, I think many people, when they hit this stage, they don't have the tolerance for the whole I don't see color mentality. Mm, yeah, no. Because if you don't see color, that means you don't see me. Exactly. Right? Yep. And I'm going to own who I am, mm-hmm. and I don't have to defend it anymore. Mm-mm. And then the last stage is the internalization and commitment. And this is where uh, blacks are able to find ways to translate their own personal sense of blackness into a plan of action or a general sense of commitment to the concerns of blacks as a group mm. that is sustained over time and they're able to comfort be or be in comfort with one's own race and those around them. Mm. And so then there's the integration model. I'm not going to get into all that because this is not a lecture. But once you have an integration model between um, these races coming together uh, and you go through those stages, then we can live in harmony with one mm. another. Accepting each other's differences, uh, owning your own difference, mm-hmm. and not being apologetic about it. Mm. And it took time for me personally to work through that. I didn't even realize I was working through those stages and stuff until I started studying this mm-hmm. theory. Where I can remember pinpoints of my life was, shoot, I was in that stage for yep. a minute. Do you see what I mean? Yep. And so... Um, I think because of the construct of race, because of the construct of whiteness in this society, people of color have to go through this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think it's especially applicable um, for white families that adopt or foster children of color. Um, because f- because the parents are white, they have not had to go through this process. Mm-hmm. And so then they don't know what to do when their child starts to go through it, right? Yeah. And it means they've also not done their prep work to help prepare their child to go through this natural process, mm-hmm. you know? And so whenever I talk to a family 
that has adopted or is thinking about adopting a child or children of color, this is one of the things I always mention. Like, be aware of their racial mm-hmm. identity and do everything you can to help them try to foster a sense of that identity or to give them the tools to begin to name that for themselves. Absolutely. And that takes intentionality. Mm-hmm. So that means exposing the child to things of their culture. Yes. Yep. Exposing them to people of their culture, yep. uh, literature of their culture, movies of their culture, showing them. I mean, if you Google beautiful woman, Man. you ain't going to see nobody that look like me. No. T- you got to scroll a little bit before you get right. some for real melanin, right? For real. And, and so seriously, so it's, it's, it's an intentionality that one would have to, to, to make to make sure that their child is getting that much exposure. No, that's 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 real talk. And uh, to also remember that an um, acceptance of, of the child's racial identity is not a rejection of the parent. Oh, my God. Can I just say? Yes, okay. say it. Go for it. White people. Mm-hmm. Dear white people. Dear white people. <laughs> Listen up. My acceptance of my own racial identity and my desire at times to be around some black girl, black boy joy is not a disrespect or a rejection to you and your identity. When black people want to be in spaces with other black people, it is not a rejection. So whether you have a child of color, whether you have friends uh, of color who may not want to hang out all the time, especially if they're your only friend of mm-hmm. color, it is not a rejection to who you are. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Representation matters. Yes. Yes, because there's, there's ways that I am fed when I'm around friends like Hazel that I just can't be fed even by my best friends that are white. Yes. Like, and you love you love them. Yes. It don't mean we can't connect It doesn't connect mean deeply. we can't connect. There's just something missing. It's something different. Yeah. And that's okay. And that is okay. Yeah. And that's okay. Yep. And no one needs to make apologies for that. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So, yes. Mm-mm. But again, just had to get that off my chest. I think that was personal for me. I, think I could that tell. Was real personal. I could, yeah. You started talking low. You got closer to the mic. I could, <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> Sorry to impose mm, my personal stuff on the listeners. No, that's why you're here. <laughs> you know, but again, if, if you haven't had to go through this process, if every space for you is a space with your people, then I could get why it might seem off-putting because you don't have a framework to understand it. You're yeah, trying to measure absolutely. us with the same way that you were measured, right? Yes. And your friends are measured. And you can't do that. I don't want to be treated equally. I want to be treated equitably, right? Ooh, and there's ooh, a difference say that there. Again. I do not want to be treated equally. I want to be treated equitably. Yes, right? And absolutely. I, I use the analogy of um, able-bodiedness, right? If I've got a friend with me, my friend mm-hmm. is in a wheelchair, right? Mm-hmm. We come up to a set of steps. If I walk up the steps, treating him equally with me expecting him to walk up the steps, right? Yes. That's also rude as hell. It's so rude. <laughs> right? Like, bruh, you know I can't do that yes. right now. Yes. Equitable treatment yes. is helping him up the ramp that is hopefully yes. next to the building. Helping him up the ramp. Yep. Using what is given to you mm-hmm. where there is... A sense of power. Yep. A sense of privilege even. Yep. And saying, I'm going to humble myself mm-hmm. to help my friend yeah. up the ramp. Yeah. Because my friend doesn't have the access, doesn't have the abilities, yep. doesn't have the privilege, doesn't have yep. the power yep. to get up the steps on their own. Yeah. Yeah. See what I did there? I did. I saw exactly okay. what you did there. And, and, and thinking about power, right, sometimes um, because of the way the system's set up, our friends, those we love, 
need us to utilize our privilege to help them be able to access the fullness of their own power. Yes. Right? Yes. And yes, I think yes. that's what, what gets lost. It's not that in treating people equitably or, or refusing to treat people equally, meaning all the same, we are saying certain groups are not as powerful. Mm-hmm. No, we're just saying that sometimes you need to utilize your privilege to help remove the barriers that are keeping someone from accessing their own Absolutely. power. Absolutely. 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 So I have to quote my pastor here um, Mm. because I just, this is what comes to mind. My pastor, um, he recently in a sermon uh, (laughs) said this line. uh, He was, it it doesn't matter what he's talking about, but this line in particular, he's, he mentioned in the sermon, um, black people are not sitting around hoping and wishing that they get invited to a white person's house for dinner, coffee, what have you. Mm -mm. They don't sit around hoping that. Mm -hmm. Not that they have an issue. Right. With, with, you know, so yeah, they would love that. They'll welcome the invitation. Not that they have an issue. And so his point was, was that I don't have an issue going to your house for dinner, for coffee, what have you. But I have an issue when you prevent me from buying a house. Yep. That's that equitable piece that you're talking about. Yep. I don't mind becoming into some sort of relationship with you. Mm -hmm. As long as you understand. (laughs) Yeah. That there are some privileges that you naturally have that I don't, yep. and I need you to use your voice as an ally yeah. yep. to speak out against the things that, that bound me yeah. and make me swim in a pool of injustice. Yeah. Mm. Pool of injustice. Man. Child. Man. Mm. Come on. I don't know where that came from. That was deep. And it makes me think about, I always go here, and some black folks don't like the, the mixing of different uh, experiences of oppression. I see it as part of the same struggle, though. Um, and so, so people in relationships, mm-hmm. you know, if you are a heterosexual cisgender man in a relationship with a heterosexual cisgender woman, or, or even if you're not hetero, if you're in a, mm-hmm. a long-term romantic relationship with her, recognize a lot of these same things apply. Yeah. Right? Recognize the power dynamics at play. Recognize... The times you've got to get out of the way mm-hmm. to ensure that room is made for her to live into her own power. And I think the other thing is is recognizing the differences too. Because amongst all of this mm-hmm. are differences. Yep. So what you and I are talking about, that may not be an issue for some people of color. Yeah. That may not be an issue for some heterosexual, uh, cisgender yeah. uh, individuals. And so we can't treat these things mm as a cookie cutter approach to everyone, right? So the the thing is, uh, I have a professor uh, in the counseling program who often says, Dr. Uh, Jacqueline Brager, she often says, to understand people is to understand them in their context. Mm. Understand a person's context first. Yeah. Before you start, you know what I mean? Now these are tools that we're talking about. Um, We're speaking in general terms for the most part. And know that there are differences even within the black community. So there are things that I do. I can't get some of my black friends to do. Mm-hmm. They ain't fooling with me on those things. Mm-hmm. They call them shenanigans. Yeah. Right? And so I got to know. Like shopping I gotta know at Target. That, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. Like shopping <laughs> at Target. Ben and I had this whole issue about Target. Or uh, for some of my friends, hiking. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Yeah. I would do it to... There's a window sure, of time, sure, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. After a certain time of the day, um, I ain't going to be in nobody's woods. Right. And I'm not going to be in anyone's woods before a certain time sure. of the day either. Yeah, yeah. So I, I need the peak hours, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But maximum lighting. Would, yeah. Maximum lighting. Yeah. <laughs> maximum lighting. But there was a time I wouldn't even do it. Now yeah. I would, You know what I mean? And I have yeah. friends that would not even take me up on it. Yeah. So I think the point that I'm making here is that we can talk about these things in, in really broad general terms that, that could be very applicable to many individuals in certain communities, and we still got to understand people in their context. Mm. One of the ways that I like to wrap up 
these podcast episodes is by giving the listeners one or two tangible things or practices um, that they can, they can chew on, they can hold on, or they can implement throughout the week to drive home some of the themes that we've talked about, right? So we've talked about understanding people in their context. We've talked about what it means to um, experience childhood um, rejection and how that shapes one's identity. And we've talked about the journey into owning an identity for yourself. And so mm-hmm. as you're reflecting on those, is there um, a practice or, or something you'd point people to um, to further explore these throughout the week? What's coming up for me is listening. And I, I want to expound on that a little bit. When you think about yourself, um, your experiences, whether you've had childhood trauma, uh, rejection, abandonment uh, concerns, uh, whether you are um, finding yourself uh, stripping yourself down Mm. to fit in in certain contexts, um, listen to yourself. Mm. Listen to your younger self cry out. Mm. Listen to Uh, the emotions that are stirring up in you when you find yourself struggling in certain contexts and and spaces that that you may occupy um, and honor the stories that are coming up. Mm. So that's for self, right? Mm. Uh, And then for other people, again, listen. Listen to people's stories. Seek their stories out before making a quick judgment or assumption. Mm -hmm. Ask people what they need. Ask how you can be of help. Do your homework. Mm -hmm. Before you approach anyone to give you something in a transactional way, to make you feel better about yourself or to uh, make you feel more woke or Mm. what have you, use Google. Mm. That's what it's there for. Mm. Do some homework, do some reading, and then listen to yourself as you're reading these things that are making you uh, really dig deeper into how you view the world. Yeah, amen. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and for being here today. Hazel. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It was a good time. Um, if people want to support you or learn more about your work, where do they find you? Yeah, so I am on uh, social media, uh, Facebook and Instagram at Hazel Owens. Um, on Instagram, it's underscore Hazel Owens. Uh, and uh, my website, HazelOwens.com. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to episode 17 of the Invisible Truths podcast. If you appreciated this episode, take a moment to subscribe and leave a five-star rating. You can find Hazel's information on the episode description, so please check that out and support her. She's doing some amazing work. And if you haven't seen it yet, take a moment to visit my Patreon page and learn how you can support me in the work I'm doing of bringing healing through storytelling and communal dialogue. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Invisible Truths Podcast. Until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.